I have with me on the phone Dr. Iqbal Malik, who's a consultant cardiologist at Hammersmith Hospital in London and Imperial College London. Iqbal, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you very much. Iqbal is here to talk to us about the role of coronary angioplasty and stenting in people with stable angina. So, Iqbal, it wouldn't be that unusual for me as a GP to have a patient come in, let's say he's a 60-year-old accountant who had um, coronary heart disease diagnosed about nine months ago. It's been fairly stable and well controlled on beta blockers. He only used, he's only needed to use his nitrate spray perhaps once in the last nine months. Um, but he's come here because he needs a repeat script of his medications and also because a friend of his has of his has just had a stent put in one of his coronary arteries and he's wanting to know if that's the sort of uh, treatment he ought to be looking for to prevent him getting a heart attack. Um, so um, to start with, let's, uh, let's set the scene. What's the evidence for stenting uh, or not stenting or coronary angioplasty in people with stable angina? So thanks for asking that question. And of course, it's a common scenario where a patient has a degree of angina, known coronary disease. And the question is, is there anything beyond the very good medical therapy that he should be taking? Um, by good medical therapy, obviously, it's aspirin, statins, ACE inhibitors, plus an anginal tablet or two. The guidelines would say that you want to fail two antianginals before you think about revascularization. I must say, I don't follow those guidelines myself. I think uh, adding two more tablets to the pot is going to be difficult. So let's assume that he has disease that could have a stent in. Should we or should we not put a stent in? Well, I would say I'd be guided by how much ischemia he was getting. And so that would be assessed non-invasively with either an exercise test, very rough and ready, probably not what I would use, or a stress echo or a nuclear scan to see how much ischemia there was. If he comes to you and you do not have that information, then I think you probably will need to be referred for a test before deciding if it's a good idea or not to put a stent in. So I wouldn't routinely just put a stent in because a narrowing is there. That's a very important point to make. However, if there's a large territory of risk, more than 10% of the muscle is in jeopardy because of that, then even in someone whose symptoms are very mild, I would certainly consider revascularization. And so when we're thinking about what sort of revascularization or replumbing to use, then you could think about angioplasty or you could think about surgery. But if it's a single vessel disease, then angioplasty provides a much quicker fix. And unless you're diabetic with specific types of disease, you're gonna live just as long with angioplasty and stenting versus surgery. I would just mention that, of course, we've been talking about stable angina. There is absolutely no debate that angioplasty is life-saving if you have an acute coronary syndrome. So I just hope the audience is absolutely clear that uh, acute coronary syndrome is a completely different ball game, and that paper that we've just written is nothing to do with that whatsoever. Okay, so stenting doesn't improve prognosis necessarily. Um, I think your point about moderate to severe ischemia being an indication is interesting because your article actually says the evidence on this remains unclear. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we, we can always do with more data. And actually, there is some more research that we're doing to try and prove whether proven ischemia and then a stent is better than just giving optimal medical therapy. 
And there is one trial which suggests that that is the case, and that is uh, coming out of a very large study, which actually suggested that revascularization wasn't needed in everyone, but actually has come out with the conclusion that if you had a subgroup with a lot of ischemia, then you got a lower event rate by actually having revascularization and stenting. So there is some evidence, but you can always do with more. So we're, we're going to be guided by what would I do to my dad? Well, to my dad, if there was a large area, more than 10% risk, then he'd have a stent, and if there's a small area, then he wouldn't have a stent. Of course, it's also guided by symptoms because even small areas of ischemia can cause crippling angina, and so if then the tablets had failed, then I would say, of course, we should put a stent in anyway because stenting is used for two things. Changing prognosis, the evidence is shaky, but large area of risk, I would probably believe the small amounts of data there and do it. But symptom treatment, no debate about that whatsoever. Stenting is great at symptom relief and only about 5% of stents re-narrow these days and therefore it's a good permanent fix to symptom, symptom relief. So uh, I would say that prognostic wise, yeah, I agree with you that our paper does say that the evidence is slightly more shaky, but I would still say that large area of risk stenting is good. And then in the small area of risk, if the symptoms deserve it, I wouldn't mind putting a stent in to get rid of that symptom. Mm. And when you say it has prognostic benefit in, in some indications, um, uh, you're talking about risk of myocardial infarction or death. Yeah, so I think we're talking about combined endpoints with these studies. The, the good news is that coronary disease is so well treated that trying to show mortality advantages is very difficult. So if you have the com combined endpoint of uh, death, heart attack or rehospitalization for angina, then I think you can really get proof that angioplasty works. If in fact, unfortunately, you're going for death alone, you're going to struggle to prove anything that reduces mortality over the wonderful medical therapy we have these days. Okay, and angioplasty versus stenting? Oh, so, so my, in my mind, angioplasty is stenting. So we would very rarely just do the balloon angioplasty and not put a stent in and a drug-eluting stent at that these days. So the days when it was just a balloon only are long gone. And so angioplasty these days equals stenting in 98, 99% of cases. The only time I'd put, not put a stent in on top is if very specific odd branch points, huge vessels where there was no stent available of that size. But when a patient talks about angioplasty, you should be saying you're talking about stenting because a stent is almost invariably put in. Okay. And let's talk about risks now. We've talked about possible benefits. What might be the harms of uh, uh, stenting, for instance? Okay, so we have to enter an artery somewhere. So wherever we enter, I tend to go from the wrist, but uh, some people still go from the leg. There's a risk of puncture of that artery and bleeding occurring from there. And the wrist is a safer route than the, uh, than, the, than the leg is because it's a deeper artery in the leg and you can bleed internally without noticing it. The wrist has no space, so it'll bleed outwards. You can put your finger on it and stop it bleeding. Uh, so that's the first risk, uh, just the ac access point. And then, of course... Angioplasty works by dilating a narrow, chalky, fatty vessel with a balloon. And so you're going to tear that blood vessel. You can't make it bigger without tearing it. The stent then seals up the tear. But in the midst of tearing it and then sealing it, there is a risk of heart attack. 
there's a risk of bleeding from that blood vessel causing an internal bleed and you have to get your catheter close to that vessel and therefore you have to go through the head and neck vessel so whichever way you're going you have to hit the arch of the aorta and you could throw up some grit which might cause a stroke so the complications of angioplasty mainly are access site internal bleeding setting off a heart attack or stroke and then we use dye and dye can sometimes hurt the kidneys but wrapped all of that up for most patients, that's a 1% risk. So they need to balance that against the risk of just suffering with angina because if you have angina, you've got coronary disease, it's not as though you're at 0% risk the whole time. You're probably at 2 or 3% risk of having a heart attack or dying every year. And so then that puts into context the 1% risk on the day of having a stent. Okay. So let's get get back to the the man who came to see me this morning um and interested in knowing whether or not he should have a stent what should i say to him in lay terms so uh we'll presume that this is a a, a chap who has not had that ischemia testing okay because if he hasn't then it's quite difficult to know what to say to him uh so in that situation i'd say well uh, your symptoms are very well controlled, but the symptoms are not the be-all and end-all, and we seem to have missed out the ischemia test to say how much of a ischemic burden there is. So I'll refer you to have that test, and then we'll have an evidence-based answer as much as we can. But don't forget that the tablets you're taking are making you live longer. If we have the alternative situation where he's had an ischemia test, well, that's easy, because if he's got a very large burden of ischemia, then you say, well, actually, the evidence is that you may well benefit from having a stent in there if you accept the 1% risk of complications. And, yep, I'll refer you for that. Or if the ischemia test said no, then you can be very clear and say, look, there is no benefit from you having a stent in that moderate narrowing. It will not make you feel better because you're feeling great already. It will not make you live longer because there's no evidence for it. And it's got that small chance of killing you, so don't have a stent. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Who then should we be offering stenting to in someone with stable angina? Could you just wrap up with a quick summary? Okay, so I would say that's, that's pretty easy. Just because the narrowing is there, don't just put a stent in. If you have proven ischemia then, and it's a large territory, I would stent that person saying there may be some prognostic benefit. It's worth taking the risk. If you've got symptomatic angina and you failed an anti-anginal tablet or two, then no worries. We, that's what we really do stenting for these days, to take away your symptoms to get you back to worthwhile work and life. And uh, given the fact that the prognostic benefit of stenting is still um, not absolutely dead set clear, uh, although, as you say, it is suggestive, um, what do the guidelines actually say? Well, the guidelines say that in stable angina, you should have a trial of medical therapy and actually try two anti-anginals. And so uh, I think you'd be perfectly within your rights to say, well, you're on a beta blocker, let's try a calcium channel blocker. And if you're still feeling great and you can tolerate the tablets, carry right on. The caveat I would put on it, as I mentioned just before, is that if you've got someone with a large area of ischemia, I wouldn't follow those guidelines personally if that was my brother or my dad, um, but I would follow them if there was no ischemia, no problem at all. It's, uh, so 
in summary then, I think angioplasty and stenting is a fantastic symptomatic treatment for coronary artery disease, and there may be some prognostic advantage if there's a large area at risk. That's very helpful. Iqbal, thank you for this useful summary of the evidence on the harms and benefits of stenting in someone with stable angina. It's, it's a bit of a, a difficult area and um, it's one that you know GPs are increasingly being asked about by patients. So thank you.